Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about advanced visions of paradise. Before I get into it, the quilly of the day is pure land consciousness. What is pure land consciousness? I should first introduce you to basically the, you know, six Buddhist realms, which is one way of, in a sense, breaking down the possible kind of attractors uh, of consciousness. Like if you were to map the you know transition probability between different states of consciousness and the kind of like limit cycles or attractors that emerge, perhaps like this might be a good, you know, a good lens of kind of how to interpret those attractors. And I highly recommend this book, uh, Opening the Heart of Compassion. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful kind of like overview of the six uh, Buddhist realms and in, in what way, you know, they can be extremely sneaky, they can manifest in how we think, how we feel. And whenever you are in one of these Buddhist realms, you tend to be, in a sense, completely stuck um, in it because the frames that you use in order to, in a sense, do state transitions come from that realm. And in a sense, <laughs> they are closed rooms. Uh, they seem at times like they have kind of a deep insight into the entirety of consciousness and the universe, but in some sense might be kind of a, a bit of an echo chamber in, in some interesting way. Um, and uh, I will, in a sense, like talk about these six Buddhist realms as I go through various visions of paradise. Um, but it is worth pointing out that in a sense, you know, maybe 99.999% of, you know, states of consciousness, human beings um, are, in a sense, like in one of these, like, six Buddhist realms. But you can also be outside of them. You can actually be free, which is you can be in a state of being, a state of consciousness that is not actively engaging in, you know, activity related to one of these Buddhist realms. And instead they are, in a sense, able to perceive them as options, as kind of like a menu of consciousness, and notice the pros and cons objectively without getting wrapped up or seduced or, in some sense, embedded within any of those spaces. And that is a wonderful place to be because it's, uh, it's free, it's unbiased, it's capable of ultimately really telling, you know, what is good and bad about them. Uh, and that would be, yeah, roughly speaking, maybe the, the state space of experience of, you know, bodhisattvas, uh, you know, very advanced meditators, uh, you know, some exotic states of consciousness might have kind of that flavor, um, maybe like, for example, 5-MeO DMT, and maybe to some extent, you know, something like, you know, MDMA or uh, things of that sort may give you a temporary glimpse of, you know, what might be kind of outside of the six Buddhist realms. Um, and uh, to some extent, you know, a lot of what I'm going to talk about will be best absorbed, best thought of. <laughs> it's going to be the most useful to you if you understand it as, in some sense, yeah, kind of like the work of, yeah, people who've been trying to figure out the way. I mean, in a sense, actually gaining control over states of consciousness and not be completely, completely wrapped up into any of these, like, yeah, limit cycles. Um, I'll also mention um, that basically, you know, a vision of paradise requires an aesthetic. 
Because if you want to carry out basically a vision of paradise, you need to coordinate with other people. You need a shared, very kind of like fast, parallel, decentralized, um, very, very efficient way of, in a sense, tagging events or situations that happen and in a sense, like quickly get a sense of like whether they're compatible with the overall picture or, or aesthetic. So in a sense, like, you know, when we reason about the future, when we reason about like, you know, what could be a good, you know, utopia, <laughs> so to speak, um, th there is this, um, there, we're doing things on multiple levels. Like on the one hand, you know, you're using an ontology, you're using kind of like a sense of what is real, what is good. Um, what kind of frameworks are adequate in order to understand what is good and what is real uh, on the one hand. But then also you're cultivating, a, cultivating an aesthetic, which is uh, you're in a sense figuring out a way to feel about images and about concepts and about situations. And it, it kind of like, you know, settles down into a coherent structure that might, you know, we might describe it as a, a kind of like a self-perpetuating aesthetic. Now, uh, aesthetics, you know, it's very loosely defined for the most part. You know, you, I, I have a, a, an article on, you know, seven model, eight models of art uh, that I, I recommend reading to kind of like show you, you know, how tricky it is actually to, to, to know like what an aesthetic is fundamentally. Um, but I really like the work of uh, Rob Borbia, um, a great uh, meditation teacher, Dharma teacher that I've been, uh, yeah, basically reading and, and consuming his work uh, recently. And the way in which he describes a, an aesthetic is as follows. So basically there are three components to it at the very least uh, in the simplest formulation. The first one is arrows. And arrows is, I mean, is related to kind of like sexual energies and arousal, but it's not quite it. It's a generalization of it. It's passion. It's in a sense, the, the desire to get closer to the images to which you're attracted to, to the images, the, 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 the sensations, the archetypes. Um, and in a sense, cultivating an aesthetic involves, in a sense, cultivating that passion towards those archetypes. And, you know, the archetypes could be like very, in a sense, low level or very high level, very abstract things like, for example, you know, justice and beauty and, uh, and intelligence and things of that sort or something much more basic like, you know, uh, a walk on the beach or something like that. Like maybe that is a key part of your aesthetic or like, you know, pictures of nature or something like that. In either of these situations though, for it to, you know, qualify as an aesthetic, you require strong passion, have these beautiful resonant reverb of experience when you actually evoke those images so that you can savior them. And that's one part. Another part is that you also requires what you might describe as like psyche, uh, which is the collection of images, you know, the archetypes, the things that you're attracted to. And, and there's kind of this dialogue between heroes and the psyche. And finally, you also need logos. And logos is the overarching conceptual framework that makes sense of the psyche. Because, um, you know, particular ideas, like even, for example, what is an atom? You know, something very, very simple. What is an atom? You know, your conception of it is very, very different as a function of basically how you have filled in the details of reality, your model of reality. Like an atom is a very, very different entity for a you know, particle physicist who knows quantum field theory relative to you know, some, you know, somebody in uh, elementary school who just learned about atoms and maybe hasn't even been taught that there's electrons and protons and quarks and so on. So 
uh, in a sense like the logos allows you to organize these images and pictures and concepts within an overarching framework and an aesthetic is actually the the simultaneous coexistence of arrows psyche and logos painting uh, basically a picture of what is the good and the thing is that uh, this is something that ultimately gets implemented with hedonic tone, with valence, uh, with quote-unquote vibing. In a sense, is cultivating a way of vibing where particular you know situations and images give you these beautiful, resonant, you know, reverb quality to the to the soul, so to speak. And uh, in that sense, you know, a lot of the times, uh, many disagreements that happen between people maybe at the intellectual level they share you know ideas and concepts and background assumptions but you know if they've been cultivating very different aesthetics for many years there's things that they they might say that you know within their semantic web you know within their logos or maybe the kind of a uh, 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 heroes that ha they have been cultivating um like something that is factual something that is true may not be possible to absorb within one aesthetic you know maybe even if intellectually you know you know it's true or you know it's correct if it doesn't fit within kind of this web of you know harmony and consonance between the various elements of your aesthetic it's going to be dissonant and unpleasant and it's quite interesting that i think a lot of the times uh when people disagree uh actually they agree on the on the object level it's just that their aesthetics are different and they don't know that and it's not obvious and also because of naive realism <laughs> whenever you experience something dissonant it feels like it's inherently bad so yeah i mean when somebody says the things that go against your aesthetic that might actually feel you know fundamentally very unpleasant <laughs> and in that sense like it's involuntary it's involuntary and uh I would definitely suggest equanimity here uh, for this uh, talk, if not in general, where, yeah, I mean, notice, you know, discomfort with whatever I might say. Uh, perhaps you agree with it at the object level, but you may say something like, well, it doesn't quite check. And my claim is that it's actually because it's causing a little bit of dissonance with your implicit aesthetic. And, and most people have implicit aesthetics. They're not, you know, they don't have a theory of their aesthetic laid out. You know, they haven't <laughs> gone that far for the most part. So that's a, a super important thing. Um, the overall way in which I'm going to organize this video is by talking about these hypothetical camps in maybe a cool event. We might call it, you know, um, uh, like the Super Happiness um, Festival. <laughs> and this is a, a something that a it's not only me, you know, we've been working on it for, for, for quite a while now. Uh, in 2020, uh, we had like a, a pretty big like internship cohort and one of the groups of that internship cohort uh, focused on basically creating a QRI online book, which basically binds together a lot of like the core works in an order that will allow you to essentially, essentially consume them and hopefully understand all of it because it's uh, basically building up to kind of this, um, this worldview. Um, but also we introduced a piece of a new narrative in a sense that organizes the various uh, articles and, and ideas in, in, in a way that, you know, put them within a broader kind of logos or maybe meta logos because each of these might have its own logos, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, huge uh, thanks and congratulations to, uh, yeah, Wendy, Ellen, uh, Hunter, Tanvi. Uh, and uh, Zuck and, and Mike who have uh, contributed to this to this effort and probably blanking on somebody else but um, 
essentially we will yeah re be releasing this book really soon and i'm very excited about it so keep you know keep in touch <laughs> uh stay posted uh we will yeah publish it pretty soon um and from that book uh yeah basically the thing that is building towards which we will get at the end of this uh video is camp paradise engineering and this is uh art by this is like a uh the the tower of paradise engineering uh the artwork is made by uh wendy uh <laughs> so many thanks wendy and uh mackenzie made this pin and uh she she ordered <laughs> basically yeah some of the the art in this in this format which is yeah fantastic i also wanted to thank uh really quick um yeah, basically, uh, yeah, uh, Mackenzie, Sean, Quinton, and and Zuck, uh, yeah, for all of their work uh, in general to you know help help QRI further, further its mission, its aesthetic, and its uh, understand it and, and advanced science. And uh, yeah, they gifted me this uh, very beautiful coral uh, necklace, which I wear very proudly, and it will have a non-trivial connection with one of the camps, <laughs> as I will be uh, describing them in a second. Okay, so what are these camps? Um, what is this advanced visions of paradise? And I know that, you know, saying that our visions are advanced is very arrogant because, you know, that's a very, that's a relative term. And what does it say? What does it mean to say that, for example, um, a technology is advanced? You know, it's obviously some kind of like bold <laughs> social movement, you know, it's, uh, move. It's not like de describing it, you know, objectively in a sense. It's, it's a relative term. Um, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, we are bold enough to claim that you know the conversation that we're having right now about hey what paradise should be like or could be like it's uh these are very advanced ideas i mean basically um mainstream discourse even you know futurists the most you know nick bostrom david pierce you know eliezer Joukowsky, very smart you know futurists they're barely scratching the surface of this and they are very advanced too to begin with right so uh, in a sense, we're going to go very deep. We're going to be very deep. So hopefully you you join me in this uh, in this investigation. So I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. So one last thing <laughs> before we go through the camps is uh, there's a key difference between negative and positive visions of the future. And he, he, there's a bit of a, a play of words here because when somebody says, "What is your negative, you know, view of the future?" You imagine what, what you know, what dystopias do you think are likely, or something like that. No, uh, I'm using here the word negative as in like, uh, you know, they're testing for a disease and the result comes negative, meaning you don't have it. <laughs> so, what is a negative view of the future? Is basically a view of the future where you say, you know, paradise should not have X, you know. Paradise shouldn't be X, you know, and X might be something like it shouldn't have intense suffering. It shouldn't be a totalitarian state. You know, it should doesn't shouldn't have mind control. You know, it should, shouldn't be uh, completely stuck in a particular super narrow range of emotions or anything, something like that, you know. And um, if you dig deep, you know, into, you know, ideas that people have, utopian ideas, uh, you know, something like, you know, communism and anarchism and any any kind of you know high level conceptual framework that organizes a notion of what is a good future if you dig deep into them you will overwhelmingly see that there are actually negative views of the future disguised and presented as positive views of the future right is like 
for example, uh, I mean, I, I hate to mention this because it's obviously very controversial. People are still attached to these, I would describe low dimensional, low grade visions of the future. But yeah, just as an example, something like Marxism or something is kind of a, oh, the future shouldn't have, you know, class struggle or something of that sort. You know, it's kind of shouldn't have the bourgeoisie or shouldn't have, you know, uh, injustice. It shouldn't have X, Y, Z. Sure. Okay. What if we don't have that? Does that make it wonderful? No, it just, you know, you just like a tiny corner of possible badness in the universe that you have ruled out. And isn't it insane to base all of your worldview of like, you know, and your visions of paradise around merely what you don't like? <laughs> it's insane. It's kind of just complete and utter lack of imagination, not digging deep into what you could have. And oh my goodness, if you actually open your mind up to what you could have, there are some wonderful discussions to be had. But you require the adequate conceptual framework to actually dig into that. A very, very, very key one is, you know, understanding that ultimately what matters, the source of value is states of consciousness. Like that is where value bottoms out. It's the, the inherent, you know, goodness or badness of the universe is determined by the goodness or badness of the experiences that inhabit that, that universe. So, you know, talking only about the you know, mo modes of social organization or, you know, even something like, being free of pollution, uh, back to nature, whatever it may be. They're all talking about the external physical world and how it's organized. And, you know, David Pierce might describe all of those utopian visions as rearranging the deck chairs, which is, yeah, not getting to anything actually deep, uh, if, if you see what I mean. Um, so in order to explore positive visions of the future, I actually compel you to open your mind to understanding the role of consciousness in the future. Not only, you know, raw pleasure or something simple like that, you know, low level, you know, eating candy all the time or something like that, but actually understanding that experiences have a <laughs> instrumental value because consciousness can be used for information processing. So just from that fact alone, clearly consciousness is very likely to play a very big role, if only as, you know, part of a computational system. Uh, but two, <laughs> consciousness also has intrinsic value. So Nick Bostrom might describe it as utopia resides in the space-time of awareness. That's where utopia is. It's not out there in the world. It's not, you know, machines and robots or something like that. No, it's in the space-time of awareness. So now that we have clarified that, the question becomes, what do you want to fill the space-time of awareness with? Well, let's go through some fascinating visions. So first of all, what I call, what we call camp hedonism. And, you know, uh, this is kind of yacht parties and drugs and talking to very attractive people, going to very beautiful, you know, festivals, eating a lot of beautiful food, very tasty food, you know, experiencing perfumes, you know, Fancy, fancy perfumes, you know, the good stuff of life or something like that. And uh, let me tell you something. There's a lot of truth in this perspective because um, if you look at, I mean, there's controversy about like whether this is good science or not. But if you look at like what people regret in their deathbed, so to speak, 
no, not so to speak, literally. If you interview people who are <laughs> about to die, like, what do you regret? They say things such as, like, you know, I shouldn't have taken myself so seriously. I shouldn't have worked that much. But above all, they say things like, you know, I should have enjoyed myself more. You know, I, I just, you know, was too caught up in the winds and currents of life. And I, I, I didn't stop to, to smell the flowers or, as it were, to go to the club and party. And, you know, honestly, yeah, for a lot of people, a very large percentage of people, you know, maybe a majority of people, a lot of kind of like what makes their life maybe not as interesting is because they're not actively looking to expand, in a sense, their horizon of experiences. In real and, and, and a very beautiful insight that basically comes from camp hedonism is that value exists and you better find it in the world. Go and get it. <laughs> be bold. Try it. <laughs> um, don't be completely shy and like miss out on opportunities. If somebody invites you to a weird party, go for it. You know, there's there is a lot of value in that way of thinking. Um, it knows a lot about the textures of experience. It's open. You know, it's a very open, open to experience kind of a vibe. And, um, and that's great. That's beautiful. You know, actually, I think that any paradise worth its name <laughs> will have a lot of that. We'll have like artists making amazing, amazing art. And you will have like, you know, chefs making amazing food or whatever we evolve to, you know, consume or basically uh, uh, these kind of like intense, beautiful qualities of awareness that can be cultivated and experienced. Yeah, all of that. We should have all of that. Now, there is a caveat, which is that in our current human vessel, as it were, uh, <laughs> well, there is this thing called hedonic adaptation. So, yeah, I mean, if you go to one yacht party with very beautiful people and amazing music and uh, you network and it's awesome, you know, that's great. But if you're doing that every week, uh, nonstop, it's kind of like pushing the pleasure button and then, like nothing is happening at some point. Um, and it gets a lot worse if actually you're talking about like, you know, hardcore drugs like methamphetamine or heroin, things of that sort. Uh, that, yeah, they, they cause a lot of pleasure in the moment, but uh, they do come at a very, very, very high health cost and also hedonic habituation. So like if you actually plot how good they are over time, uh, it, they tend to be not negative, especially if you use them a lot. Again, moderation is key. So if you can have moderation and kind of be rational about it, camp hedonism is great. And if you think about it, honestly, you know, that's, <laughs> that is like what people tend to imagine in, in a lot of cases uh, 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 as paradise. Now, the maybe the corresponding Buddhist realm that we might ascribe to these, which is maybe describing more kind of the negative quality of this, of this camp is hungry ghost. And hungry ghost is this feeling of things not being enough. Like, you know, you had a meal and you feel, you know, that was good, but I just need a dessert. Or, you know, you had like a little bit of like some drug or something. And it's like, you know, I feel good, but I should just have a little bit more. And uh, uh, Romeo, actually, Romeo Stevens from QRI, he describes it as uh, people in the hungry ghost realm are kind of like, they feel that they need like 50% more all the time. And it, it, it really doesn't go away. And the thing is that, yeah, with things like hard drugs, a lot of, you know, partying and like typical pleasure-seeking activities for, for, the, for humans, 
um, that builds up and you end up becoming a hungry ghost. So yeah, I mean, if you go to a rave or something and you go to kind of like the in crowd, chances are a lot of the time <laughs> at the party, they're in a hungry ghost state of consciousness, which sucks. I mean, really, <laughs> that's not a way to treat your, your mind, your consciousness, fill it up with a hungry ghost qualia. So yeah, and hungry ghost, you know, it's very sneaky. It uh, sneaks up on you and like, you don't realize um, how much of your experience is hungry ghost until it's kind of like too late in a way. And also it can entrap you really hard in a very, very hard way because basically it makes you compulsively do the things that feed the hungry ghost consciousness too. So uh, that's very important to be avoided. So what is to be done? Well, let's go on to the second vision of paradise, which is camp psychiatry. Now, this may, I don't know, it sounds kind of uh, scary, but, uh, you know, camp psychiatry, what are the, the core insights of camp psychiatry? So first of all, is the recognition that we are pretty bad at taking care of ourselves. <laughs> that uh, uh, humans, I mean, like, uh, humans are, yeah, kind of like 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 pets in a way. Like, we, we don't realize the extent to which, for example, whether we eat very, very bad food has to do with the fact that there's junk food just right there. You know, just there. Or... Uh, you know, drug abuse, like becoming an alcoholic because there's beer in your house. You know, you have access to it, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. You know, camp psychiatry knows that. It's kind of like one step above in, in, in that it recognizes, yeah, you know, there's the kind of a proximal and distal desires. There's the first order and second order desires. And we should cultivate more of the second order. And it's not only about like what you want right now, it's what about what you want to want. What is it that if you could want, it would be good for you? You know, how can you make it so that you actually want to eat salad, for example? You know, like I'm making really good salads and, and things like that. Um, the other thing too, very big insight is area under the curve. That, you know, if you plot your hedonic tone after you take methamphetamine or something like that, you will see kind of a very big spike and then a drop and then like negative and, you know, you're going to be negative. And, uh, you know, especially if you've been using it before, it will be a net negative. Like the 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 integral of this curve will give you a, a negative result. So those activities are actually just making you more miserable, all things considered. And camp psychiatry knows this. I mean, like they that's what they look for. They look for like, okay, what is the the net contribution of this? Now, uh, very importantly, though. Um, what it really doesn't know <laughs> is that there's actually much more valuable states of consciousness than you know kind of just the the kind of normalizing aesthetic of, of the of camp psychiatry where yeah basically the the thing the way in which it tends to work is like well you're presented with people who have very serious disorders or maybe mild disorders and then the the point is to kind of like normalize them and get them to be like you know productive members of society and like sure maybe like happy and so on but intense happiness is not necessarily celebrated and it, it might actually be viewed with suspicion as for example like a, a manic episode or something like that or hypomanic you know you're you're seeming too happy let's uh, give you some you know antipsychotic or something to kind of like level you out and uh you know that's a big loss because actually you know baseline human happiness can go way higher than just the normal you know becoming a, a productive member of society so, so that's important to consider. I will also point out that, I mean, an advantage of camp psychiatry is economies of scale, which is that 
Uh, one thing is to kind of like ask uh, help from a friend who, you know, maybe has a full-time job and a family and does other things. Uh, so like, you know, listening to you is kind of like this one-off like special thing and they don't necessarily have like specialized knowledge on that. Whereas, you know, yeah, I mean, somebody who does this for a living, you know, like day in, day out, like hour after hour consulting with people, um, they will have a very good intuitive model of like where your problem lies simply because of, yeah, the, the, the scale of it. And, and likewise, I mean, like if you seriously want to, in a sense, provide a new ther therapy to, to humans in a way that, you know, will actually scale, it, 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 it makes sense to actually do it through some kind of like specialized profession, like, <laughs> like psychiatry. So, um, that, that's good. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, the, um, the Buddhist realm that we might associate with kind of like the negative part of this camp would be the animal realm. The, and the animal realm is basically, yeah, the, the state of consciousness that develops when you become very comfortable with uh, kind of like your everyday life. And it's kind of like territorial. It's not ambitious or anything. It just kind of like wants to preserve its, you could say, mediocre way of life uh, in a way. And uh, that's a big risk. And, you know, so many people end up in a sense kind of uh, stuck in the in the uh, in the animal realm, uh, you know, working at a job they don't like for years and years and years because, you know, the the, the gravity well of it is too, too deep. It's very difficult to kind of jitter yourself out of it. And, uh, you know, camp psychiatry, I don't think it's very good at, at, at that. I think I think it's uh, if you are in a worse realm, like that's an improvement. It can give you an improvement. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not the ideal. So uh, the kind of. Um, uh, aesthetic condensation of the negative side of you know camp, camp psychiatry is uh muzak and potatoes which is in a sense uh from the repugnant con uh, uh the repugnant conclusion from uh, uh derek parfit uh which is uh anyway like a, a fun reference but the point is like yeah muzak being kind of elevator music just like this very 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 boring music uh <laughs> it's just barely pleasant you know just barely worth listening to and like eating just you know on spiced potatoes or something like that it's like yeah you know this is fine <laughs> it's okay it's an okay experience you're not suffering but also you're you know, you're actually missing out on so much so what is uh, to be done well let's move on to the next one which is camp wholesome camp wholesome so yeah i mean like not not in a super stereotypical tropey way but yeah i mean rainbows and 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 heart and uh good vibes so a very important thing is a lot of people underestimate the power of love because one thing is to kind of like take love you know casually and maybe expect the world to give it to you to generate it for you another very very different thing is having kind of a systematic approach where you're cultivating it as much as possible you're cultivating a heart centered way of looking at the world and feeling and interacting with it and that is beautiful that is beautiful so uh, for example, there, there's lots of reports uh, that I have received of like, yeah, if, if you do like loving kindness meditation, something like one hour a day, for example, for, for an entire month or longer. And, you know, you take a psychedelic at that point, your psychedelic experience is going to be just so much more beautiful and loving because, 
yeah, this beautiful consonant metronome that you've been cultivating will really come to the surface and it can be so moving and, and healing. And in a sense, it's, it is true that, you know, love heals all, all wounds. It, it, it is true. The, the problem is that, you know, love doesn't last uh, <laughs> for, for very long uh, in most cir circumstances. But if you can kindle it, if you can keep it going, you know, that, that is a massive improvement to one's life. Like enormous, you know, so much higher of an improvement to life than taking Prozac, taking an antidepressants or, you know, perhaps I would equate it with a kind of like doing a lot of exercise and actually even more than that, you know, like taking seriously the cultivation of loving kindness and the Brahma Viharas, which would be kind of the extension of that, the divine abodes. Beautiful. Fantastic. Let's do it. Um, this uh, aesthetic also has kind of this notion of uh, listening to your body which the camp psychiatry doesn't. So you take antidepressants and you have lots of nausea and like you feel that, you know, this is kind of toxic in some strange way to your body. You explain that to the psychiatrist and they say like, you know, that's normal. That's just uh, the side effects of this particular drug. It's going to go away or it might go away and uh, don't worry about it. Uh, or just like, you know, accept that that's like part of the deal. Um, and oftentimes, you know, your judgment of like how good actually this is for you, it's correct. And like, you know, sometimes if you feel sick, actually very often, I would say, if you feel sick from psychiatric medication, it's probably something you should really be listening to. So yeah, paying attention to your body and how it feels and kind of like treating all of your organs and treating all of your components with a, a lot of love. It's very, very important. And, uh, and it really pays off. It pays off. Um, however, uh, this aesthetic does have some side effects when it's taken to the extreme. And the thing is that for a lot of people, this is the most advanced vision of you know paradise and goodness that they can have. And uh, the failure modes are actually pretty, pretty extreme, pretty stark, <laughs> very neurotic, very unpleasant, and uh, should be avoided at all costs. So I'll just mention a few. First, uh, uh, this aesthetic tends to be enumerate, like just not care about numbers and quantities, which is just a huge problem, you know, because uh, the effect that you have in the world, uh, depending on what you do, you know, the effect size is distributed along a, a very long tail distribution, you know, and this is kind of, a, you know, the, the whole idea of effective altruism, that you should actually take into account numbers and quantities. <laughs> Super simple, right? This should be elementary school. But somehow you have like super well-funded charities, super, you know, very prestigious with, you know, professors on the, the board of directors and whatnot. And they're not even actually trying to compute the cost effectiveness of what they're doing. You know, and they might describe something as like number of people uh, served as kind of like a metric rather than like, you know, something that actually matters, like, <laughs> like, you know, quality adjusted life years or like amount of, you know, amount of time spent in super unpleasant states of consciousness. Um, uh, you know, measured, you know, per dollar that you might be able to prevent or anything of that sort. Camp Wholesome doesn't process that very well. It's very strange, but basically kind of just, just having a heart-centered aesthetic makes you be very suspicious of numbers and it makes you feel that it's like cold and calculating, which is completely messed up and total BS. So like, don't fall for that. That's uh, just so, such a huge failure mode. So common, so common and resilient. Um, 
it's also dissonant with kind of like what works. So like if it turns out that the particular modes of organization, particular even like, you know, circuit layouts or something like that, they don't look like they have kind of these uh, kind of, a, you know, fundamental fairness and um, and a sense of unity and love and so on. Um, if they don't have kind of that, if they don't pattern match to that, Camp Wholesome will experience it as dissonant. And, and that's, a, that's a problem because actually a lot of the things that work <laughs> actually work kind of a, um, in a way that is completely dependent of like whether they follow Camp Wholesome. Uh, and uh, the next camp actually kind of like takes that further. Um, but I would say maybe the worst uh, kind of like part of the uh, Camp Wholesome is um, that it allows you to smuggle a lot of shadow into your thinking and strategizing in that like in a sense uh you may have kind of like some like sociopathic tendencies unchecked because you justify it in the name of love for example uh so like power dynamics and things of that sort that um are actually really damaging um may be you know justified within the framework of like uh well the other people lack empathy the other people lack compassion they are potentially sociopaths or potential psychopaths or something like that. But it is, you, you've got to understand, this is like a very low resolution, very low dimensional aspect of that aesthetic. And it's really, really messed up and messy. And uh, unfortunately, I think uh, um, that underlies just like so much uh, value destruction where basically kind of this top-down imposition of, you know, whatever the current uh, cultural ideas of what you know love and compassion should look like uh, basically influences how things work on, on the low level and I think that's like it tends to be hugely disruptive so uh, not good not good um, if I were to kind of map it onto a Buddhist realm it would be the God realm or the Deva realms because you know in Buddhism they don't have a creator God they have a pseudo creator God a, you know they have a high level uh, Deva or God who believes it's a creator of the universe but actually isn't uh, Brahma, uh, but uh, uh, basically they do have this notion of um, beautiful realms of experience where you, if you're reborn in there, you will live for millions of years and it's so full of love and, you know, unconditional beauty, unconditional love. Um, in order to get there, you need to do a lot of good deeds in your life. You have to be, you have to have a very clean soul, you have to cultivate compassion and the divine abodes, you know, uh, uh, sympathetic joy and love and uh, and compassion. All of those, uh, if you're very diligent, you put a lot of energy into them. They would say you might be reborn in in a, in a deva in a god realm, uh, and even in this life, you will live in kind of like a a, a a godly, divine, beautiful, loving vibe, and that's extremely valuable. But, you know, in the Buddhist realms, actually, they also talk about a lot of the side effects that happen in the God realm. Uh, I, I actually posted a quote from this book in Quality Computing uh, called uh, Traps of the God Realm, um, which is in the, in the description. And yeah, basically, uh, the God realm tends to be pretty delusional, actually. Like, it's completely disconnected from, like, any understanding of, like, suffering and its nature and its quantity and its causal, its causal underpinnings. Uh, it just ignores it it kind of like imagines that it already made it it's already pure it's already godly it's in heaven whereas like no everything is impermanent it doesn't matter how much loving kindness etc you cultivate 
You've cultivated a finite amount of merit. You've cultivated a finite amount of it. It's not like a final, you know, release. It's not a final solution. It really isn't. Um, and the God realm doesn't know that. The, the entities in the God realms, so to speak, they, they believe that this is eternal. They believe this is forever. And they have tales of like, for example, how towards the end of, of your lifespan as a, as a Deva in the God realms, um, you know, you start to actually decompose and all of, you know, it used to be that you exude beautiful smells, but now you exude repulsive smells and you exhausted all of your good karma. You will die and you will probably be reborn in a very low realm because you don't have any good karma left. And uh, that is uh, a problem. So uh, uh, in practice, Camp Wholesome has that issue that it's often like weaponized and used uh, in, in, uh, in kind of like with a big shadow, uh, used with, with a big shadow. Uh, and also it's delusional. It kind of has like poor models of how the world works. It has poor models of how to even like, you know, maximize it, it, itself. You know, it, it's very complacent. It, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good in all of those ways. But it does have some beautiful insights that we should take and, and carry with us as you, we continue on this journey of advanced visions of paradise. Uh, so what is the next one? The next one is Camp Palio, uh, which sounds very silly for, you know, you know, connecting visions of paradise with kind of a, a Palio aesthetic. Uh, but yeah, this is not a, a, you know, not talking. I mean, maybe I'm referencing, okay, like we should probably use a little bit of kind of understanding of evolutionary um, uh, or evolutionary history in order to determine, you know, what's optimal nutrition and, and things of that sort. But uh, Camp Palio goes much deeper when it comes to um, its aesthetic. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention a couple of things. Like first, it's like very cognizant of super stimuli. Like it recognizes that like we evolved to ba basically be in a, in a place that is like much more sensorially deprived. You know, there's this uh, meme or joke of like a single Dorito uh, contains more nacho flavor than, you know, a peasant in the 1500s would like experience throughout, you know, the entirety of, of their life. And, uh, you know, that probably does something to us. You know, it kind of like resets our expectations and uh, pleasure thresholds. And again, like the, the hab you know, hedonic habituation and the hedonic treadmill comes to mind again. Um, and Camp Alio is very aware of that. So like they, they basically are very mindful of super stimuli. And uh, that's great. That's that's fantastic. Uh, they're also very mindful of, you know, optimal, you know, nutrition, optimal uh, sleep discipline and, and things of that sort. But also understanding human incentives and human nature and like not being delusional or in denial about it. And I would say that, I mean, there's like a beautiful marriage between Camp Palio and Camp Wholesome, where basically you are trying to maximize love while also understanding that people follow incentives um, and that, you know, the animal self has strong constraints that oftentimes is not willing to compromise on. And in that said, you know, that as kind of a, 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 a evolution of an aesthetic that incorporates these elements can be good. Uh, independently, independent of each other, you know, they, they have like, uh, they lack some, some important perspectives and, and understandings. Um, Camp Palio also has kind of like healthy skepticism of completely new interventions. So like doing large interventions uh, in yourself or in the world uh, that are like completely new relative to, you know, uh, our evolutionary past. Like it's going to be very skeptical of that. 
and 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 that's good i mean it's actually good that there are people who are very skeptical of any large you know effect size intervention and it would be like much more cautious so like rather than trying to like create paradise by you know kind of like trying to change culture you know camp palio would be much more of the opinion that we should in a sense try to create a beautiful seed that um really you know does uh, incremental changes in a in a somewhat um cautious way so that like in a sense we don't mess with things that we we don't know about so yeah there's this concept of kind of a chester stones fence and to be yeah actually you know uh pretty pretty explicit about um the fact that uh if you remove human incentives normal human incentives usually things don't work so that's that's important to take into account now um i will say that it does have a a couple side effects which is that it may have some blind spots uh and uh camp palio in a sense like may not really understand to some extent that like there might be some aspects of human nature potentially i don't know i don't know this is this is a hypothetical but like there might be aspects of human nature that may make it so that we are like a danger to ourselves no matter what uh and like things such as you know like um mutually assured destruction as a as a kind of game theoretically stable equilibrium for like things like nuclear weapons and things like that it may be that human nature is actually incompatible with being able to do <laughs> you know use that kind of a technology responsible responsibly and in, in that sense uh camp palio might be a little bit too romantic about like how far you can go with human nature which is something that yeah i mean i think kind of a, a bit of a transhumanist vision uh can complement that so that you recognize like yes there's a lot of good in human nature uh human nature is you know these very incredible thing that out of this insane level of you know reading tooth and claw darwinian selection pressures we created something that is not completely terrible you know like humanity is like a pocket of goodness to to quite an extent relative to the horrors of darwinian life <laughs> in in a, in a broader sense and uh and that's a uh, very very important to, to to recognize and be very mindful of and honor and respect without like doing too many modifications but also let's not be too romantic about it let's understand that you know human nature can also take us to to hell which is uh yeah the the dark side of palio i would say maybe uh hell realm to some extent because uh, it's an aspect of human nature is cruelty and with cruelty taken all the way for for example maximizing power or something like that yeah we can expect pretty bad stuff happening um which is yeah why it's so important to bring to the table camp wholesome and the other the other perspectives so let's move on uh camp energy is uh camp number five so here's the here's the elevator speech uh the 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 uh the the ad for camp energy which is that hey like a lot of activities that we do we don't realize it but they build up gunk and gunk is a very broad category but roughly speaking there's like a lot of aspects uh of our nervous system that you might describe as uh gunky <laughs> that like for example if you are hungover you might experience kind of like a weird viscosity in your nervous system or yeah some kind of like unpleasant tension uh anxiety or whatever we, we may call it and that that's gunk uh or you eat a lot of junk food and uh and over time like you feel kind of like disconnected from your stomach and like to some 
you know, some, some things happen that makes it so that like things don't flow, uh, energy doesn't flow. There's a lot of blockages. So that's, that's a gunk. And, you know, gunk can be generated because of like, you know, food, because of like drugs, you know, taking, taking recreational drugs. It can be generated by actually like reading or watching very low quality, like media and aesthetics, like just, uh, things that basically build up kind of a physiological stress, um, uh, things like social stress, even, you know, or feelings of meaningful, meaninglessness, uh, anything like that will accumulate gunk over time. So what can we do about it? There is one weird trick to get, <laughs> get rid of your neuronal gunk, which is apply energy in a judicious way. Um, I made a mistake, actually, which was that hell was associated with Camp Energy. <laughs> uh, whereas, actually, Camp Palio was Titan. Apologies about that. Uh, Camp uh, 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 Palio might be Titan in the sense that, like, the uh, the main side effect is that, yes, sorry, the, the escalatory dynamics, which is cruelty. And uh, cruelty combined with power, that could be, like, yeah, the negatives of the Titan realm. Hopefully, I didn't say anything too... Too, too confusing. But uh, yes, apologies about that. The uh, um, the negative of camp energy is uh, the hell realm because when you intensify the energy of your experience, uh, you experience things more deeply. There's more of... It's a multiplier for valence, effectively. Um, and in that sense, uh, you know, feeling a stomach ache can be bad. Feeling a stomach ache while on 5-MeO DMT can be hellish. You know, so basically any technique that uses high levels of energy for, for treating your nervous system has the potential to be hellish, which is why really anything that intensifies energy, you should treat it as sacred. Really. I mean, like LSD, psilocybin, <laughs> intense meditation, you know, Janus, like stages of insight, you know, Temporal lobe seizures, all of all of those things. I mean, not that you would give yourself a temporal lobe seizure as a you know treatment. Uh, well, I guess electroshock therapy. But well, anyway, uh, um, you 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 should consider these kind of like sacred activities because they have the potential to be hellish and they have the potential to be heavenly. Uh, and I guess, uh, sorry, I got distracted by my confusion. And again, apologies about that. But uh, yeah, camp energy. Uh, there's a common thread among all of the following things, which is sauna, uh, psychedelics, uh, cold showers, uh, yoga, meditation, breathing, exercising, um, art, you know, intense art experience, ecstatic experiences. What is, what is the common thread in all of these things? It's energy. Is that they are all energy enhancing activities. You know, art because of novelty. Uh, novelty generates, uh, gives rise to energy. And I, and I mean it quite literally. I mean, there's the interpretation from the free energy principle, you know, unexpected things increase, you know, free energy, which is a computational level account. Here, I actually talk about like uh, uh, physically, like the, the sum total of the energy of your harmonic modes in your brain. I, I do think it increases with like all of these activities. And that's important. That, that actually does something. What, what does it do? It's power washing your nervous system. And that gets rid of gunk. Um, very related to, um, yeah, kind of like this this perspective that when you activate the harmonics, um, you're in a sense like equalizing, equalizing components of your nervous system and getting them to resonate with one another. 
And that process shakes off the gunk. It's something that you can feel. The, the phenomenon in meditation of purifications. In, in this frame, they would be, in a sense, de-gunking your nervous, nervous system. Um, and uh, it's, you know, phenomenologically, it actually feels like you're breaking apart some kind of like mud substance that is uh, coagulated. And yeah, being depressed might be very related to having a lot of that. Kind of like having this huge kind of like Play-Doh encasing your body and making it very viscous. You know, so camp energy how knows how to deal with that, and that's uh, that's awesome. Again, you have to be very judicious. You you have to know how to apply the energy to degonkify your nervous system in a net positive way. And uh, there's a whole art to that, and hopefully also a science as we develop these uh, these visions further. Um, there is one problem though, which is uh, that it's not aware of the underlying causal reasons why this works i mean from the point of view of camp energy this is alchemy and and you do have a lot of people who are kind of implicitly they have a camp energy aesthetic you know yoga teachers or uh you know psychedelic facilitate facilitators uh you know advanced meditators they they tend to have kind of a camp energy aesthetic uh which is pretty surprising because it kind of like gets out of the typical you know cultural views that we have about paradise and it also gives them uh, a deeper understanding of basically ethical priorities because they, you know, if you have access to high energy states of consciousness often in a way that doesn't damage you and actually heals you, well, yeah, you recognize that they are hyper valuable in a way. They become kind of the center point of your life, the thing that, you know, gives a spice to your life. And, uh, uh, you know, an analogy that uh, Mike, Mike Johnson was giving uh, in uh, the neuroscience of meditation was if you have kind of a tuning fork, um, that it has like mud in it, you know, hitting it and hitting with a lot of energy and making it resonate at its own resonant frequency will shake off the, the mud. And the mud at first is damping, damping in it, but the more you hit it, the more it shakes it off. And eventually it becomes kind of like, rather than, you know, biking uphill, the feeling is that of biking downhill. So there's a, yeah, stream entry in meditation, like after which, yeah, apparently like, Meditation is much more fun. It's, it actually feels kind of easier to do uh, because you have kind of this momentum and in a sense, you've mostly shaken off the mud rather than like, uh, like every time I hit it with energy, it just doesn't uh, resist. It doesn't want to move. Okay, so, <laughs> so that's, a, that's camp energy, but it doesn't have a deep understanding of the causal structures. This is alchemy from the point of view of camp energy. And, and as I said, it's... Uh, shadow side it's dark side would be would be hell and i would say yeah i mean there are like groups of people who only use kind of camp energy as their their aesthetic uh maybe there, there's some cults uh maybe even some sex cults uh have kind of this aesthetic uh on, under uh, you know implicitly uh it, it can be very hellish because then you know if you think that the solution to any problem is just like a, some kind of energetic work well, in many cases, it doesn't work, you know, and it's extremely unpleasant and maybe traumatizing and maybe traumatizing to an extent that it wouldn't be if you weren't playing with energy. So that's important to keep in mind. Uh, it's not the end all be all and it doesn't understand itself in a sense. It's uh, alchemical, magical. <laughs> so what is, you know, what is it that we should do given this? Uh, well, the next vision 
and and now we're going very deep. I mean, I, I think like these kind of like level of analysis is uh, really not present anywhere else as, as far as I, I can tell. So uh, the next camp number six is camp self-organization. And here is where you do have kind of these desire, these arrows attached to causal structures that you actually want to understand, okay, why does energy, undo, you know, why does it allow you to get rid of energy blockages? And why does that, you know, connect to hedonic tone and, and feeling good? Well, in camp self-organization is where you actually, you know, model, for example, the brain as a weighted sum of, of connectum harmonics and maybe there are nonlinear interactions as well. Uh, you, you understand things holistically but not in a cheap, you know, spiritual way of like, oh, everything is connected. But no, in a much, much deeper sense, in, in the sense of like, hey, how does a lot of tiny building blocks working in the same way give rise to emergent large scale behavior? What is that process? What kind of like tiny circuits of self-organization when tiled would give rise to a collectively beneficial behavior? That is the sort of thing that camp self-organization is thinking about. It's not trying to, you know, figure out like an aesthetic to impose on everybody. Not at all. This is transcending that, that kind of approach. Instead is figuring out what kind of like low level self-organizing principles when scaled up gives rise to the good and beautiful, you know, ultimately cashing out in, in states of positive valence. But uh, also, yeah, I mean, basically what kind of self-organizing principles are better for, for example, better communication, better flow, better dissipation of energy, better, um, you know, buildup of energy, uh, and also, for example, diversity of patterns or evolutionary dynamics. Uh, what kind of self-organizing principles give rise to good evolutionary selection pressures? Like, all of that is what a camp self-organization really, really cares about. Um, and uh, I, I would mention, you know, the free energy principle would be kind of like in this space also uh, neural annealing. Uh, the work that yeah, Mike and I have, uh, have uh, spent a lot of time on, you know, Buddhist annealing, basically it's kind of Buddhism from the lens of camp self-organization, you could say. And uh, I would definitely include like the symmetry theory valence as well um, in, in the sense of like, uh, it's, a, it's a whole account of like how we can, in a sense, quickly and in a massively parallel way with holistic field behavior, identify whether, you know, an, an organism is in a good state or not uh, as a function of basically whether it's a, is in a consonant state. And that is, you know, principles of self-organization. Uh, the whole aesthetic that analyzes, for example, DMT trips as an excited world sheet that then uh, has energy sinks either through recognition, like Bayesian energy sinks, or through symmetries. Um, so that like the things that you experience on DMT tend to be hybrids of semantic content and symmetrical configurations. All of that, all of that is the aesthetic of the camp self-organization. And the truth is, we haven't even begun exploring this. You know, this is a very large topic and it's definitely not yet, you know, connected with kind of like understanding positive and negative valence and uh, ways in which you can actually use states of consciousness for various purposes. And, uh, you know, camp self-organization is not going to describe, you know, your weird DMT trip or, you know, your weird experience <laughs> um, in terms of like, oh, was this, you know, like kind of like a, another dimension or was this kind of a, a different wavelength or something like that. They may actually talk about it in terms of like, ah, 
which of the self-organizing principles in the periodic table of you know self-organizing principles are being the, used as the building blocks of that experience and uh, it may very well be that in a sense you can describe a lot about a person in terms of like very low level self-organizing principles that give rise to emergent personality behaviors um and uh i mean something that mike for example was pointing out is that you know if somebody's very greedy to give an example that may not only be a psychological connection you know a, a condition it may in a sense like be the reflection of what self-organizing principle the entire body entire system is using so maybe if you're really greedy you know it's not only that you know you you act to kind of like get more and more and more compulsively without feeling you know satisfied it may also be that your kidney works that way or maybe your 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 heart or your lung you know uh it also has kind of those those problems you know maybe they're also greedy about basically the glucose or the oxygen in the body and imagine if you have like a lot of like greedy organs all of them just trying to kind of like play a, a zero-sum game um the organism deteriorates way faster than maybe if you have something where like all of the organs are actually just trying to make the other organs as happy and uh, and and healthy as possible where there's like synergy and there is a positive sum game that happens that uh, ultimately yeah gives you something much much more than the the sum of the parts uh so yeah uh self-organizing principles may cut really really deep and uh there's also most likely a huge range of possible alloys of self-organizing principles that yeah that give rise to completely different outcomes the buddhist realm i would associate uh with the uh camp self-organization is the human realm and the human realm basically is this desire to understand everything uh the picture that they use in the uh opening the heart of compassion yeah i mean basically like you know studying you know field behavior self-organizing principles uh un understanding you know your your dmt experience in in that lens and all of that well there is a catch to it it's good it allows you to navigate it better it makes you less flabbergasted because you don't know what's going on but also it does have the the negative psychological effect of closing you up to the mystery of reality the very deep mystery and the truth is that all of this is still just like scratching the surface and that the moment in which you truly buy into an aesthetic for reals and you think that it explains everything you have closed so many doors of experience so many perspectives ways of seeing a huge loss so yes you should use you know the the human realm in order to make as good of a map of reality but also understanding that if you're always only in that realm you will be closing yourself up to whole realms of experience and uh, in a sense like dampen your sense of mystery which is an important ingredient for continuing to explore and understand reality so that is that is uh, the side effect it's not a terrible side effect i mean it's not as bad as i guess camp energy where <laughs> the side effect is i don't know you might be uh you get a bad 5meo dmt treat or something horrifying like that uh you know being closed off to the mystery is not that bad maybe arrogance maybe the arrogance that comes with uh 
thinking you you understand how you know societies work and things like that and you're playing kind of a technocratic role um maybe that also has like side effects but uh i think like from the point of view of self-organization i think you can build a, a pretty compelling case that it's applying the right lens that is self-correcting ultimately i mean like if, if that is the level of analysis uh rather than just being guided by your aesthetic blindly i think i think it's uh yeah can overcome a lot of its own problems uh, a coral reef would be a, a maybe a beautiful beautiful metaphor for self-organization and what it's capable of. Kind of like lots of little tiny modules pursuing their own self-interest, and as a consequence, you end up having kind of this beautiful hyperbolic, you know, self-organizing system. And likewise, you know, when we think of paradise, maybe we shouldn't think of like what are we going to do once we win, and like everybody does whatever we we want or something like that. We should think about like. What kind of uh, circuits, what kind of like principles of self-organization would actually scale up in a graceful way without like only being, for example, you know, tiling the universe with uh, something, something beautiful or something like that is more like, yeah, how do we make a dynamic system that is like resilient and anti-fragile at every scale? Uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll just mention also, yeah, definitely free energy principle is here. There's also kind of uh, the principle of maximum flow. Uh, also, I would put it here, anti-tolerance drugs, kind of like understanding that um, uh, there's like feedback systems in, in the in the nervous system and that like maybe we can in a sense get rid of chronic pain by combining uh, an opioid uh, uh, agonist together with an anti-tolerance drug, like maybe the evolution of ibogaine once we get rid of uh, heart side effects and things like that. Yeah, that would be kind of the self-organizing aesthetic too, basically is how do we fiddle with the parameters, the gain and, you know, the the precision of, you know, synapses in order to, uh, in a sense, uh, prevent the buildup of tolerance or something like that. Even just natural hedonic habituation, you know, how do you, how do you prevent that? Uh, it, it, it may actually not be like drugs in the end. It may be something else, like using transducers uh, at the precise moment within, you know, a meditation session or something like that. Who knows? But, uh, but basically the, the lens that like we've had to understand the, the 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 cybernetic feedback systems within our within our entire organism and fiddle with them very carefully but in in their own terms such that what emerges is something that is very very valuable uh, which takes me to the final one which is camp paradise engineering and this is the, the symbol of camp paradise engineering uh, let me take a <laughs> Um, a sip of water. So this is where it gets extremely deep. And uh, honestly, I cannot make justice uh, to this cluster of ideas. You would have to listen to them while on Samadhi <laughs> for, for them to truly make sense. And this is a very key component that, similar to like the six Buddhist realms, that you can only really understand what they are and in what way they're kind of like sneaky attractors that, you know, in some sense, like block your ability to perceive further. The only way to do that is to be outside of them, to disidentify with them. And mm, to know that an aesthetic is not you that when you marry with an aesthetic, you are 
in a sense, embodying it. And whatever goes against it feels like an attack, <laughs> which is crazy. That's a, a very crazy side effect. But that's that's how we tend to, to, to work. Um, so Camp Paradise Engineering is aware of that. It's aware of all the realms. It's aware of all of these different aesthetics. And I would perhaps describe it as the aesthetic of the meta aesthetic, where it looks at all of these different ideas and ideological frameworks and makes alloys out of them without at any point getting wrapped up into them and buying their vision entirely, but also without dampening them. In a sense, like being able to experience all of these different visions with a lot of equanimity and let you know their updates propagate through your system, but without allowing them to get a grip on you. And I think that aesthetic will serve us a lot, will serve us a lot. And an example of this is how a, an openness and fluidity to perspectives on personal identity influence our visions of paradise. That we should recognize that given our current state, given our current learnings, our intelligence, our access to experiences, and so on, that there's a lot to learn. There is a whole lot to learn, and it's silly to make any kind of final picture for the time being. That we really should like further the, the science of consciousness a lot more before we, we yeah, basically, before we're willing to, to be bold about like precise visions, precise ideas. And instead, what we should be doing is laying out the groundwork so that we have all of the ingredients available to us to construct beautiful visions that we don't get wrapped up into. Um, so I would I would maybe make an analogy with, uh, yeah, kind of like Buddha lands or pure lands, places where you go to learn. Ultimately, you go to awaken. Um, but in a sense, to play at that level, you have to have gone through many stages. And uh, it's a very high level to play at because you need to, in a sense, not be prey to, uh, to your previous aesthetics. <laughs> and that is so difficult. I, I don't know the percentage of people who are there, but I would, I I would imagine it's very, very low. It's uh, kind of a Keegan level five type of approach to reality. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with uh, uh, Keegan's uh, levels of development. Um, and there's so few people theorizing at that level. And I think we, we really need it. I mean, there's a lot of people kind of selling solutions or just, you know, raising up their hands and saying they don't, they don't know. Um, but not kind of these like nuanced uh, analyses with all of these perspectives taken together as, as different ways of seeing. Uh, but we can make a lot of progress, I think, on that level. And I, I'll just like share a couple of things. I've, I've made videos about this, but it's, it's worth uh, reminding you. Um, Consciousness versus replicators is an important frame here. Then, like, there's no kind of like the good and the bad guys. Uh, that's a, that's kind of like a bad low-dimensional framework. That, again, from camp value, you 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 will have to recognize that like as soon as you define like the good and the bad, it kind of like activates some like pretty primal emotions in you, which distort your thinking and allow you to uh, allow you to make coalitions based on that. 
But, you know, what is the point of making coalitions based on something that's not true or something that is just like very partial, a very low dimensional uh, approximation underfeeding reality? Um, that's not good. That's not good. And I think like part of the aesthetic of the meta aesthetic is recognizing the ways in which aesthetics give rise to various kinds of fanaticism, various kinds of closed mindedness, being very aware of them and cognizant and feeling it in your body and, and uh, really, really understanding it. Um, instead, you know, something like consciousness versus replicators, where like ultimately we're all on the same team. We're all on the same side. Whether we realize it or not, we are in team consciousness. Uh, there's kind of gradients to how much we realize it. But we can play as a one team, actually, uh, to the extent that we realize that. And we can identify, in a sense, the dangers as coming from replicators out of control. From, you know, viruses all the way to, like, ideologies, all the way to, you know, perhaps, like, robots that we might create or algorithms that might be really good at making copies of themselves. And from that point of view, there's no identification. There's no uh, commitment to a particular view of your identity that ought to be preserved. And in fact, the whole feeling, the whole desire for something that ought to be preserved is then reinterpreted as kind of a replicator strategy. Perhaps an important ingredient in anything that will pragmatically able to replicate itself, but very, very dangerous when unchecked, when not understood as what it is. Perhaps when wrapped up within the shadow of like one of the visions, not only these camps, but you know, whatever memeplexes there are in society. So by disidentifying with any particular pattern and recognizing that you know, this is a kind of impermanent play of emptiness using Buddhist metaphors uh, that, that clinging to it only makes it worse. It allows you to see reality more objectively and assess the pros and cons of the various states of consciousness that could be the building blocks, could be the inhabitants of the space times of awareness of the utopia. So flexible sense of self and flexible sense of self Yes, I mean, there's this fascinating thing where like, you know, in some aesthetics, for example, uh, a monotheistic aesthetic, there is this thing that you pray to, which is kind of this external creator God, for example. But then there's also, you know, maybe kind of a um, transcendent uh, Gnostic uh, views of, of, of divinity, where maybe the thing you pray to is kind of a unity consciousness or something like that. And uh, then there's maybe like within Buddhism and other religions like that, there's like, okay, maybe not even that, you know, there's kind of emptiness or the state of neither being nor non-being or nirvana or, or something like that, that is like very, very transcendent, but uh, ultimately not agentic. And then there's like things like, you know, like samadhi or like states of super, super elevated energy that don't have a self, you know, they don't have a personality. So... And I mean, I think we can make the case that there are important building blocks of paradise and like, okay, maybe paradise is not like tiling the universe with, you know, little monks in Samadhi or something like that. Um, but maybe Samadhi is like pointing towards ultimately, like what is this value <laughs> that physics can produce? The one electron 
of the universe and all of its tangles. You know, what states does it uh, prefer? And it's not a personal thing. You know, this is the, the craziest thing. Because like once you're kind of at, at this level of analysis where you're able to disentangle yourself from standard identity, it's kind of like you recognize that, you know, even kind of like the typical way in which somebody might have a relationship with the divine has built up assumptions about the self, has built up assumptions about reality. But if reality is like just so much more expansive, so much deeper and wider than any of that, then that feels all of a sudden kind of like a strange play, kind of a, a, an aesthetic that is very childish in a sense, almost, almost childish, I would say. Because, you know, if the sense of self is a possible variable, you have to ask yourself, you know, if we are doing this for the universe, but then in, in the future, there's no, there's, there are no self, there's no sense of self in the future, for example, that everything is like a post-Samadhi society. There's no sense of self in the future. Who are we doing this for? There's no recipient. There's no imagined sense of self getting this as, as a benefit. So all of our programs, implicit assumptions of how, for example, favors are transferred or goodness or, or karma is transferred and so on, a lot of those are fabrications that rely on very deep inbuilt background assumptions about reality. And if you start questioning them, you realize that the visions of paradise you could have could be free of that. You could recognize them as fabrications and go deeper, explore a wider space. And it goes so deep, it goes, gets so crazy once you expand and vivify and energize these high-level visions that integrate you know, all of the different camps that I've been talking about while also remaining open to the mystery of reality. And I think that is a good way forward. I think that that's a good space. That's a great place to inhabit. And it's very subtle. And right now it's a seed that we are protecting and we are trying to give life to and nurture. And hopefully, you know, it can be something that ultimately yeah, sprouts uh, something very beautiful and blossoms. Uh, but for the time being, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say it's any kind of complete vision, you know. We assume basics, like, you know, part of the negative view, the negative vision of reality <laughs> of, of the future would be, uh, you know, utopia clearly doesn't have intense uh, suffering. That, you know, that's a constraint. I can't imagine really a, a utopia with intense suffering or factory farming or things like that. They're kind of a negative constraints, but that's not a vision of the, the positive side. Whereas I think playing with a very open mind with all of these concepts, in kind of a high entropy alloy of consciousness, where you're open to, for example, how Samadhi comes into the picture. That there's so much juicy qualia, <laughs> uh, so much beauty of a very high level philosophical kind is so difficult to explain. Yes, so that's what excites me, what gets me up in the morning. And I definitely, yeah, want to share share that with uh, all of you. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, 
yeah, join me in imagining possible advanced visions of paradise. Right? Infinite bliss, everybody. And may you have a wonderful, wonderful day, uh, evening, whatever time it is. <laughs> Take care.